Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon to all of you tuning in today. Good morning and good evening to those listening to the recorded version of this event. I am Federica Bicchi. I am an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the uh, LSE, and I am your chair today. We are gathered here to discuss an important and timely topic, namely the external action of the European Union. And as we look at international affairs, tensions, but also opportunities to cooperate between, for instance, China and uh, the United States, I mean, the ongoing pandemic, the new variant uh, and all that stuff, it might seem a bit misplaced to focus on the European Union, uh, especially from London. But at the same time, I think that in fact, the opposite is true, exactly because we are facing challenges turmoil and new and uh, complex phenomena, it is important to take stock of what we have or what we know. And if only to remind ourselves of what is possible. And here we have an excellent opportunity to do so by focusing on European cooperation, uh, which has a long uh, history of uh, overcoming challenges but also some currently very divisive issues on its plate. And today in particular, we're going to discuss uh, this book uh, that two of our guests uh, have uh, edited. The external action of the European Union, concepts, approaches and theories. This book is interesting in my view, because it gives us a, us a taste of how rich analysis of EU external action have become. Once they used to be considered a sort of an exception, uh, but now they really appeal to a variety of uh, theoretical perspectives, but also they speak to a number of most important contemporary political debates, uh, from normative power Europe to leadership and effectiveness issues to feminist insights. Um, for this book launch, I've asked the editors uh, to share not only the main findings uh, of the book, but also their motivations for choosing to put together this collection, um, which brings uh, uh, together a number of scholars. And I would like to hear uh, from them, uh, from uh, uh, book contributors, sorry, chapter contributors, discussant, and you, the audience, what are the main points that we need to keep our attention uh, fixed on and the questions that still need addressing. One aspect will be particularly central to our debate today, namely whether the study of EU external action can overcome Eurocentrism and, and can contribute to a truly global politics. But let me introduce our guests Sieglinde Gstel is a director of the Department of EU International Relations and Diplomacy Studies at the College of Europe in Bruges. Simon Schultz is an Associate Research Fellow at the United Nations University and Professor 
in the EU International Relations and Diplomacy Studies Department at the College of Europe. Nora Fischer-Onar is Assistant Professor of International Studies at the University of San Francisco, and we're particularly grateful uh, that she joins us with this terrible time difference. Uh, Karen Smith is uh, our own Professor of International Relations at uh, the LSE. I have also contributed to the book with a chapter on uh, practice approaches and how this perspective can contribute to better understand what uh, EU external action is about and what it can do. But I'm here today as a chair, and it is in this role that I would like to give the floor to our speakers. Simon, Siglinda, would you like to start? Uh, yes, thank you very much. And Simon will also share some slides, so it's easier for you to follow. Thank you, first of all, for hosting this event to the LSE and the IR department, and of course, especially uh, Federica Vicky. Uh, in my part, I'm just going to stick to three points. Uh, first of all, what is EU external action, or how do we understand it? And then second, uh, why this book? And third, what's actually in the book before then turning over to Simon for the main takeaways or the findings of the book. Um, well, I think, first of all, we have to keep in mind that since its creation, the European community or union has progressively developed into a global actor with an almost state-like range of external activities that have, that have been increasing starting with the association of uh, some member states, uh, overseas territories, third countries, with the creation of the customs union in the late 1960s, the establishment of the common commercial policy, then an own aid and development policy at the European level, in addition to what the member states have been doing. And then finally, since the 1970s, also the European political cooperation which in the 1990s with the Maastricht Treaty in particular turned into the common foreign and security policy, plus the increasingly important external dimensions of uh, originally internal EU policies, such as environment, migration, energy, aspects of justice and home affairs, etc. Now this development this expansion of uh, policies uh, of the European Union with an external dimension has been accompanied also by a more differentiated institutional structure for external action um, and also an expansion of legal competences in some field. And just think of, for example, of the 2009 Lisbon Treaty, which has created the double-headed high representative for EU foreign and security policy, supported by a European external action service and a more permanent uh, European Council presidents, etc. And this development has, in addition, then been accompanied by a growing wealth of concepts, approaches, and theories seeking to describe, understand, explain, and assess what the European Union is actually doing in its external action, also in various disciplines, but in particular in EU studies, international relations, political science, foreign policy analysis, but also law, economics, etc. Now, um, how do we understand EU external action in this book? First of all, I should probably say that the EU is understood to be composed of its institutions and bodies, plus the EU member states, if they act, so, so to speak, as trustees of the union, so on behalf of the EU. Now, external action then would capture all the activities 
with an external dimension undertaken by the EU as just defined. So that means it comprises more than just foreign policy, meaning uh, more than just deliberate action aimed at attaining certain goals in the external environment by changing other actors' behavior, because it can also include, for instance, uh, activities that are just uh, maintaining relations or that produce intended or unintended external effects, but are actually more internal activities. So it's more than EU foreign policy, but it's also more than EU external relations, which would focus more on relations between the EU and third countries or regions. And finally, it's narrower, it's less than European foreign policy, which would add all the member states' national foreign policies without you know, acting on behalf of the European Union. So why this book? Um, well, first of all, Simon and myself uh, at the College of Europe uh, work for a study program which focuses on the, on the European Union and its external action. It's called EU International Relations and Diplomacy Studies. And we just realize also over time that there seems to be a lack of a textbook uh, for students that provides an accessible overview of the major ways to study your external action. Even though there are many books out there, many great books on uh, the external action describing the different policies, analyzing the different policies, we thought it useful to bring to back together a book that really focuses more on the theoretical parts, like how can something be studied, and to show also the whole range of these concepts, approaches, and theories. Uh, and it's also a bit of a hybrid approach in the sense that it's, first of all, a textbook for students, for scholars, but it's also a research volume and can and should be of interest to scholars and practitioners alike. Each uh, chapter also includes a case study of how something can be applied uh, concretely. So as you all know, um, theorizing in social sciences or theories serve several functions description, understanding, explanation, prediction, sometimes even prescription. And as shown on the table on this slide, um, we see this more as a continuum. So from concepts to theories, concepts as generalizations and abstractions of certain social phenomena uh, that serve as building blocks for theory building. And in between concepts and theory, there would be approaches. So they are more than a concept, less than a theory, and they can tend towards either the more conceptual or theoretical end of the continuum. Um, this distinction served in particular to, of course, structure the overview we wanted to give about EU external action studies in this book, but it also serves to examine basically the degree of maturity of this still rather young field of study meaning that a higher level of theorization would point towards an increased maturity of the field because it allows for better describing, understanding, explaining, and critically assessing the object of study. Now, what is in the book? Um, of course, it's a non-exhaustive overview of concepts, approaches, and theories. It would have been impossible to include everything. Um, and this is a self-sufficient self-classification, sorry, of the participating contributors. 
So it has a chapter on the history of EU axonal action and its studies, and then it has 19 chapters, each with a short case study on the following parts. And we're very happy that we have a very uh, excellent uh, range list of authors in this book. So the first part focuses on key concepts, approaches, and theories. Sometimes we call them cats, <laughs> um, developed for the conceptualization of the EU as a global actor. For example, activeness um, by Edith Driskens or market power by Chet Damro or normative power uh, as originally coined by Ian Manners, etc. Then part two introduces these cats, concepts, approaches, and theories that allow for conceptualizing and analyzing processes and effects of your external action, such as coherence, which is very important in the context of your external action studies, but also three-level games or EU external governance, which is a contribution by Frank Schimmelfennig, external effectiveness, which is what Simon wrote about, uh, and many others. Now, uh, on the next slide, you can see that the third part offers theoretical perspectives that focus on explaining external action uh, with imports, let's say, from international relations theories such as realism. We have a chapter by Adrian Hyde Price on neo-functionalism, uh, sorry, uh, constructivism, where we have a chapter by uh, Bahar Rumelili, or by integration theories. And again, this is just a sample and certainly not exhaustive, like neo-functionalism by Arne Niemann and Julian Bergman, or liberal intergovernmentalism by Andy Moravchik. The fourth part considers how various turns in the social sciences have played out in EU external action studies, the discursive or linguistic turn, normative turn, practice turn, uh, which is what Federica contributed, or gender turn uh, in social sciences and have been also playing a role and do play a role in the study of EU external action. And finally, and that's part five, and actually the focus of this webinar today, we have a part that showcases more recent critical approaches to the study of EU external action, which shared this focus that Federico already mentioned on the need to overcome Euro or EU centrism by decentering EU external action uh, through the consideration of outside perspectives, through integrating them. So this also shows a bit the tra trajectory of EU external action studies, which started very much with a lot of navel gazing, looking at what's going on in Europe and then turning increasingly uh, outside over time. But here I will turn over to uh, Simon to talk about the key conclusions and takeaways. Excellent, thank you. Simon, would you like to continue? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon also from my side. Now, um, Federica, uh, you asked us to um, single out three key takeaways from the book. So um, let's begin with the first one. Um, as Sieglinde mentioned, the study of EU external action has considerably evolved in parallel to the development of that external action itself. So it really mirrors um, the growing importance of the EU as an external actor. And when it comes to that study from a conceptual theoretical perspective, we find in the book that there's clearly more than meets the eye. Um, and because there's such a rich conceptually and theoretically informed scholarship on this matter, we argue actually in the conclusion of the book that we may actually be witnessing the emergence of a new field of studies, a field of studies 
that uh, takes many of its cues from international relations, from EU studies, from foreign policy analysis, and is therefore on this slide also located at the intersection between these three uh, disciplines or sub-disciplines, but a field of studies um, that is also clearly more than the sum of its parts. And that is why we give it a distinct name in the book. We call it uh, EU External Action Studies. EU External Action Studies is a field that is still in the making. Uh, there can be no doubt about this, but we argue that it already now displays a certain number of features of an academic discipline in its own right. Um, among those features are that EU external action studies has a particular and distinct object of research. Ziglinda just defined what EU external action uh, is. It has over time produced a body of accumulated specialist knowledge. It uses specific terminologies. We've heard the term actiness, a term that will probably not mean much to anyone who is not specialized in EU external action. And it also displays an increasingly strong institutionalization. We have study programs on EU external action, academic chairs, um, increasingly also um, specialized conferences, as well as uh, specialized journals in this area. And of course, and that's the most important aspect here from the perspective of this book, focusing on concepts, approaches, and theories, we see that there is an increasing uh, body of um, conceptual theoretical uh, knowledge that um, accumulate that helps to actually organize systematize the accumulating empirical knowledge in this area so this development of a new field of study in reaction to trends in european integration towards uh, more eu external action and a more diversified eu external action is thus a, a first major takeaway from the book a second takeaway um, relates to the implications of this finding what can we actually do with this accumulating body of knowledge produced by this uh, emerging field of study. We think that this conceptual theoretical body of knowledge on EU external action is already very rich, but we also argue in the book it can be further enriched. Um, and this in turn will help us to make even better sense of the EU and its external action and possibly also help to reshape and uh, improve it in the future. Um, the knowledge that we have is already rich because scholars have used a variety of strategies to actually theorize EU external action. They have reinterpreted uh, existing uh, theories from international relations, regional integration studies. They have imported trends from other um, disciplines uh, into the study of EU external action and have used another variety of um, ways in which to uh, make sense of EU external action. There's been a lot of creativity and innovative thinking. But we argue that more can and, and should be done. And we think on the one hand, um, an important step would be to explicitly encourage and foster a pluralist engagement among scholars across epistemological and ontological boundaries in this emerging field. Right now, we have a lot of different mosaics, but I think uh, combining them, interlinking them will yield uh, the bigger picture of the EU's external action over time. And second, we think that um, the uh, discipline or emerging discipline of EU external action studies, let's call it a field of studies, um, should emancipate from its bordering disciplines. So, so international relations, EU studies, foreign policy analysis, and understand itself as a site of um, innovative conceptual uh, theoretical uh, reflection, uh, because we think that studying the EU as a particular external actor in a theoretically informed way can uh, lead to additional uh, innovative thinking that can then also be re-exported into those other 
disciplines. And if this is done, so if these two um, uh, conditions here, engagement and uh, emancipation are uh, fulfilled, it can be expected to have two effects. On the one hand, academically, we think it can help reinvigorate thinking about international politics and foreign policy more generally. For instance, uh, when it comes to the role of non-traditional actors in global politics or studying effectiveness of foreign policy actors, I think EU external action studies has a certain number of things to say to those other uh, disciplines already. And secondly, um, more practically, it will help us to use this conceptual theoretical um, knowledge to assess, critique, and improve um, the EU's action as a global actor. And the book is an explicit invitation to uh, stimulate, to engage in a debate in that sense. Uh, it should clearly not be just an academic conversation, but a, a debate that involves scholars as much as students, practitioners of EU external action, but really anybody who is interested uh, in this action uh, in trying to improve it, to co-create the future of its study and um, a study that should also be uh, critical of um, and uh, interested in improving EU external action. And that leads uh, us to the final um, third takeaway, uh, closely related to this last point. With the book, and Sieglinde has alluded to this already, we cl see clear trends in the ways the EU's external action has been studied over time. When external action uh, was first analyzed, of the EU first analyzed, uh, scholars often focused on questions aimed at description, understanding, and at best explanation. So they ask questions like, what does the EU do? How does it do it? Why does it engage externally? What sort of actor uh, is it? In a way, these studies tended to be very inward looking. They supported a certain navel gazing uh, trend that could also be observed in the practice of uh, EU external action. In recent years, however, we see an evolution um, in the study of uh, EU external action. Scholars have become more interested in a critical examination of that action, asking questions such as, uh, is the EU's action legitimate? Does the EU promote a certain vision of justice when it acts externally and so on? And that is why approaches and uh, theories saw the light of day that are more suited to critical reflection and prescription. They challenge the EU's external action, uh, notably by criticizing its uh, tendency towards Eurocentrism and by moving from an inside-out perspective to an outside-in perspective. Important uh, aspects of this particular um, debate have been discussed under the notion of decentering agenda in EU external action studies. Uh, an agenda that is strongly inspired by post-colonial studies and is arguably the, the latest and in many ways um, very interesting and promising addition um, to this field. And as Siglinde has mentioned, it's also uh, the uh, gist of what is in the last uh, fifth part of the volume uh, right now. And that is also what we will um, be concentrating on uh, today. So our argument is that these critical approaches and, and theory also help us to reflect now on what the European Union uh, should be doing uh, as a global actor in the future, should it move more into the direction of becoming a state-light actor or cultivate its uh, distinctness. And uh, on this note, um, thank you very much and back to, back to London. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Simon, and thank you, Siglinde. Um, we're now Turning to Nora. Nora, you have co-authored the chapter with Calypso Nicolaides on the decentering agenda, a post-colonial approach to EU external action. 
And this brings us very, very close to the issue of whether the EU can or should contribute to the world of today and tomorrow, uh, as the world centers uh, of gravity seems to be shifting. I mean, is the EU ready or even suited to a discussion about post-colonialism? What is a decentering agenda and how can the EU do it? Nora, over to you. Thank you so much, Federica, for this opportunity to share my work with Calypso Nicolaidis. Um, we've been developing this um, line of reasoning uh, inspired by uh, a very rich literature um, coming from around the world, um, from uh, colonized and post-colonial uh, thinkers around the world who grappled with the questions that you um, that you uh, poignantly raise. Uh, and um, so, what I'll do today is just um, go over um, sort of the uh, the context, inspiration, and the argument in the in the chapter is a way to addressing uh, your question um, and. Uh, Again, I just want to reiterate my thanks to uh, the organizers and uh, the editors for this opportunity. Um, okay, so uh, um, so yes, why the central agenda? Um, why a post-colonial approach? Can the EU do it? How to do it? Um, well, we do believe that it's a very timely moment um, to take on this set of questions uh, because uh, we find ourselves sort of um, geopolitically, everyone uh, who is, you know, watches international affairs um, is, I believe, quite mindful of the fact that we live in an era of full-on uh, retrenchment um, in the West in response to um, a, a pattern of global power shift that has been underway for um, at least a decade, arguably two decades now. Um, and in that, that context, that relative power shift was the setting in which um, Calypso and I first uh, conceptualized our uh, article, it was a 2013 piece for cooperation and conflict, where we first kind of made this call to amplify uh, the decentering work um, of, you know, many thinkers um, around the globe. So, you know, we are we are amplifiers, not um, originators in any way of, um, uh, of this set of ideas. Um, but uh, that, that uh, the time in this has become all the more um, salient, you know, after Brexit, after the Trump presidency, you know, certainly we've seen in the context of the pandemic um, that we now live in what Acharya has described as a multiplex era. It's an era where we continue to have overlapping governance challenges. We have a, a broad institutional infrastructure with which to grapple with these challenges, but the number of um, voices at the table the, uh, the, and, and the, the, the sheer complexity um, of the challenges that we face governing in our neighborhoods and governing globally um, really requires an ability to engage meaningfully with a wide variety of actors beyond sort of the, the traditional partners um, of European uh, and Western uh, foreign policies. Um, and uh, this, this complexity uh, has led some to uh, jettison the idea that the uh, European Union can be an you know, uniquely sui generis um, normative actor in the world um, because uh, of uh, because while we have common challenges, you know, liberal Euro modernity, as Hutchins describes it, is only one of the modernities on offer. And we have to negotiate with partners um, who um, have uh, who are who are pursuing um, alternative pathways and experiences. Um, 
of modernity. Um, and so, uh, so liberalism may be in, uh, in, in, in a crisis moment, um, but the answer that has, seems to be proposed more and more frequently is realism. Um, and while there are things about uh, realism that well, we, take, we take very seriously, um, there's one feature of Western realism that is uh, highly unsuited to grappling with a post-Western world. And that's the fact that realism purports to be a historical, purports to be universal, um, and yet at the same time, it is, uh, you know, nothing happens in historical vacuum. And so sort of, you know, the, the American realist imaginary really begins in 1945. And the European realist imaginary really begins in um, maybe 1812, 1648. Uh, but in a realist world where other powers like, you know, declining hegemon Russia or rising hegemon China uh, are your interlocutors. Uh, the international relations in this, in, in this um, geopolitical sense uh, begins uh, with other inflection points um, in which the encounter with European colonialism figures profoundly um, and continues to inform not only sort of institutional trajectories, nation state building trajectories, um, but also sort of a rallying cry for, for, for justice um, and for uh, world history recognition of the um, uh, of the pain that was visited upon um, colonized um, peoples and you know whether this this pain and this call for justice is about cynically or not it is one that is giving traction to say Chinese negotiations with counterparts in other parts of the world where they may be um, seeking some you know the, the same contracts that EU contractors are seeking in Africa for example and so um, so history needs to be brought back in um, here the challenge seems to be that in, in many contexts in Europe and the United States the history that is being brought back in um, is not a retrospective, reflexive, uh, critical history that understands sort of um, how, uh, pathways of mutual constitution um, uh, in the world, but rather a sort of a reified civilizationalist history um, that is kind of reinventing friend and foe for uh, a post-Western era. Um, and so we can talk about that more um, in the Q&A, but our solution to this is to, um, is to not ignore history nor to essentialize um, histories that posit, you know, enduring civilizational uh, rivalries and conflict, um, but rather just to, to, to uh, draw on the insights of um, post-colonial theory to address the questions that you asked us. Uh, how has the world center, uh, with the world center of gravity shifting, is he ready or even suited to discussion about post-colonialism? What is the decentering agenda and how can the EU do it? Because this is our answer. And so to develop that decentering agenda, um, as I said, we drew inspiration from a rich corpus of uh, post-colonial thinkers. There are many clusters that emerged uh, during and after uh, the, the formal colonial era. Uh, there's an Afro-Caribbean and Pan-African uh, cluster of thought um, uh, to which one could also add uh, um, uh, uh, anti-racist um, thinking in the United States um, uh, since at least the Civil War. Uh, there is also a cluster, well-known well, well cluster of um, post-colonial critique are, um, articulated by, um, or, or, or made famous by Edward Said, although he was actually kind of amalgamating the insights of many um, uh, critics of, uh, of of European colonialism in um, in the Middle Eastern uh, context. Um, there's of course subaltern studies, uh, somewhat inspired by Gramscian uh, Gramscian critique, a sort of a, a, a Western leftist critical uh, critique um, of uh, the age of high imperialism, um, but uh, very much emanating from uh, the experiences of um, the colonized in. Um, in South Asia, and of course, decolonial perspectives that are increasingly gaining 
attraction, um, especially among um, pi uh, profound indigenous uh, thinkers like uh, Linda Tuiwai Smith um, and, and the work of a number of Latin American uh, thinkers um, on how to decouple um, from the more, um, you know, to, to, the, to the indigenous experience, more genocidal uh, experience of um, European colonialism. And these insights were channeled to uh, into IR via vectors like post-colonial um, decolonial IR, also various critical approaches and historical sociological approaches um, that have given rise to a flourishing sort of subfield of what has been called global IR or post-Western IR um, since the 2010s. Um, and what we essentially tried to do, or we were working simultaneously and kind of um, uh, aligned organically um, with these approaches, uh, is to import these insights into European studies. Um, and then with this book chapter into the study of European external action. Although um, we do believe that uh, any study of European external action inflected with a post-colonial uh, approach um, also must be sort of reflective um, about the uh, interplay between internal and external. It's not just about the centering out there, but also about recognizing the post-colonial others that have been constitutive to the European project in the first place. Um, so how do you do it? Uh, well, there's two challenges. One, you have to overcome. Um, we had a lot of soul searching about the labels you use, post-imperial, post-colonial, is it post-colonial with a uh, hyphen? without a hyphen, what are the sort of uh, the nuances that are involved in these different um, in these different framings. Um, but in effect, uh, one basically has to overcome a tendency both institutionally and cognitively to reproduce patterns of sort of colonial or hegemonic behavior vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, which as I've made the case are both empirically and normatively unsuited to a post-Western world. Um, or um, and and in, in in that confrontation in that reckoning, um, one hopefully um, uh, has epistemological awakenings uh, uh, in which one is able to engage and better understand the way the world looks to quote unquote others, but also to the others within uh, the post-colonial um, constitutive others uh, of the European project uh, itself. Um, so that sort of post is transcendence, um, and one can pursue this. Um, we basically sort of distill. Um, from post-colonial theory, three steps that you know proceed sequentially, but they also ricochet off each other and are mutually reinforcing. Um, you know, first one acknowledges the particularistic nature um, of universalist accounts, of exceptionalist accounts of European Union agency in the world. Um, and uh, again, you know, we, this this talk is about a European external action. The book is about a European external action, but I've been using the term Europe, uh, Europe, and European quite interchangeably. And in that context, I would also place Britain as well. This is a um, um, this is a, a reckoning that I think is also uh, um, has purchase uh, for thinking about British agency uh, in a post-Western world. So you provincialize that agency, you engage perspectives, you engage world uh, the world views of others, you engage the arguments of others, you engage the rationales of others and the, and the stakes that others um, uh, bring to bear to make sense of our complex overlapping governance challenges. Um, and in the process, you aim towards a reflexive, um, what we have called a multi-logical um, uh, re reconstruction or recalibration of European agency for a post-Western world. So the aspiration is to kind of develop a multi-log. This is sort of listening in um, in, in multiple registers uh, and, and, and attempt um, in, in, in work that I'm currently um, developing with um, 
uh, with Sarah Wolf and Daniel Huber and David Gazi, you know, we, we, we talk about this as the um, uh, as a need for contrapuntal listening. We listen to the, uh, the um, uh, plurality of voices out there on a given issue from my to uh, environmental governance, to um, gender policy, religious policy, neighborhood policy, um, and you try and interpolate between these different perspectives rather than authorizing one, uh, one size fits all, <laughs> as uh, Professor Miki uh, has, um, uh, has productively um, suggested is, counter, is, is, is not helpful uh, in, in pursuing um, European foreign policy for a non-European world. Um, so in the book, we then go on to show how um, there was a multilogical opportunity lost in EU-Turkey relations for reasons that, um, you know, in a multilog agency resides with multiple actors. So the fault is not, you know, uh, the exclusively the EU's, um, but for various reasons um, uh, that I can go into more detail in the Q&A, uh, the EU and Turkey um, forfeited this multilogical opportunity at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, migration governance is a site where um, multilogical listening is still um, is, 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 is far too rare, but it's a potentially productive site um, that we explore in terms of uh, in terms of where one can pursue multi, uh, a multilog with, with um, a plurality of actors, um, as well as these other fields of governance that I've um, set forth here. So that I'll, I'll leave it um, at that for now. Um, but uh, in you know, ultimately, um, in answer to the question, uh, is post-colonial EU possible? You know, you know, perhaps not in any sort of you know, way, you know, ultimately satisfying way. But it is, it, it is that journey of reflexive decentering um, and of uh, of um, critically and empathetically engaging a plurality of perspectives um, that we contend will serve the EU better in a post in a non-European and post-Western world um, than a historical realism or civilizational retrenchment. Thank you very much, Nora. That was very uh, interesting um, and rich and uh, uh, plenty of ideas in there. Thank you. Karen, uh, would you like to started with a, a little bit of discussing all this and putting it into a different context. My pleasure. Thank you, uh, Federica, and thank you um, for a very interesting discussion uh, thus far. Um, and congratulations on a very useful book, especially in terms of showing students how they can use a variety of theories and approaches uh, to analyze EU external action. I've already included the book in my required reading list for my course on the EU and the world. Um, and I think some of the students uh, are, are, are in the audience live and uh, certainly will we'll be watching uh, the recorded version of this. Um, so the book um, right here, I too, Federica, have a copy of it right here. Um, uh, the, uh, the book lays out an ambitious attempt to delineate and consolidate a separate field, a study called EU External Action Studies. The editors define external action as wider than just foreign policy, though I personally would quibble with the rather narrow definition of foreign policy that they use. Uh, but they convincingly demonstrate that the study of EU external action is not a theoretical desert, as some scholars have argued. In fact, they show that the literature is rich in concepts, approaches, and theories um, that help us to understand and analyze EU external policies. And I think the book makes a huge contribution to bringing together such wealth and showing explicitly, especially for students, how various approaches, concepts, and theories can be used to analyze EU external action. Uh, the editors go even further 
uh, however, uh, and argue, put the chat thing and it's just popped up. Um, the editors go even further and argue that the study of EU external action is on its way to becoming a distinct discipline with its own specialist knowledge and terminology, approaches and theories and institutionalization of the scholarly com community. They argue that scholars working in this field should now seek to combine various concepts and approaches, consider non-EU-centric perspectives and emphasize the distinctiveness of the field vis-a-vis -vis international relations in EU studies. This is a bold agenda, a thought-provoking one, and my comments and questions are thus gonna focus mostly on the rationale for and desirability of this agenda. I'm then gonna address a couple of questions to Nora specifically about her co-authored chapter in the book on post-colonial approaches to EU external action. First, however, I did wanna, can't resist, I wanted to note that the book, the book focuses largely on explaining and analyzing EU external action. It is of course natural to focus on outcomes, but what about EU external inaction? After all, many observers of the EU have repeatedly noted that limits and obstacles to EU collective action. Where are the explanations of the lack of EU influence in this global uh, multipolar world? How do these fit into EU external action studies? And should we not include more analysis of the EU as not a superpower, about its policy failures, about its failure to act in the first place? Or should we also include the emerging research agenda on de-Europeanization or what I have called arrested uh, Europeanization in, the, in this field? So my first question, I guess, would be just to probe you on how central you view analyses of EU inaction in this field. Now onto the issue of the wider agenda of the book, which is ambitious and bold, consolidating and extending an entire separate discipline of EU external action studies. Now, is there not a contradiction at the heart of this agenda? You're calling for the incorporation of non-EU perspectives for decentering, de while at the same time arguing that there is in fact a separate field of EU external actions. And one, we need to um, emancipate ourselves as Euro uh, enthusiasts from other uh, neighboring uh, disciplines. So in other words, this needs to constitute and um, uh, consolidate itself even further as a distinct field. Uh, building disciplinary boundaries or walls, as we could call them, has not traditionally been conducive to openness to other ways of thinking about a field of study. And as I was thinking about your broader agenda, I re remembered a comment by David Allen, by the late David Allen, many, many years ago in some conference or seminar or another. And he quipped that there were more people studying EU foreign policy than practicing it. Now, there is clearly a vibrant community of scholars studying EU external actions. And the most uh, ex um, biggest proponents of this um, are, in fact, in this uh, Zoom room. But I sometimes wonder whether we are rather overstating the importance of EU external action in the wider international context, both the empirical reality and the scholarly community. After all, EU external action studies is really the study of only one part of what only one international organization does. Is there enough going on empirically to justify delineating an entire field of study, much less a discipline? And di discipline defining is tricky. Um, and I'm just gonna use international relations because this has been on my mind um, quite a lot recently. 
there is some discussion, in fact, as to whether international relations is actually a discipline or just a field of study. We've recently been trying to hire a number of new colleagues. I'm the head of department, so this is why this is on my mind. And many of the applicants were actually bewildered by the existence of a separate international relations department at the LSE, where in most universities, IR scholars are a small minority within a larger political science uh, department. Now, I would respond and defend the existence. Obviously, I think that's you know that's my job. Defend the existence of a separate international relations department by arguing that international relations is in fact a field of study that is interdisciplinary, building on numerous disciplines, and is all the richer for it. It isn't just political science or international law or history or sociology and so on. Um, so it doesn't doesn't belong in a political science department anyway. Um, however, I can see how the mere existence of a separate IR department generates some curiosity or even skepticism. There are, in fact, people who might argue that a focus on IR as its own discipline generates an inward-looking focus that distracts us from engaging with interesting avenues of inquiry about all things international that occur elsewhere in other disciplines. In other words, defining a discipline can actually be very exclusive. Right, excluding other um, concepts, approaches, and theories from neighboring uh, disciplines or fields of studies. So I would sort of, it just strikes me that EU external action studies covers a very narrow sliver of contemporary international relations, foreign policy analysis, and EU studies. It's not, it's, you've also said EU studies, not even European studies, so just the study of one organization in this, on this continent. Um, and I would just say, just, you know, put out there that by focusing on building a distinct discipline, we risk missing out on engaging with interesting scholarly work elsewhere. Should we not instead be thinking of the EU and the study of its external action in terms of what these things are instances of, i.e. cooperation or integration or alliance building or bureaucratic politics or policy failure or learning or whatever, but in other words, the EU is just something that is happening in the world and there might be other things that are happening that are, are similar, or the EU might in fact be some sort of unique, weird, um, uh, shining city on a hill. I wouldn't go that far though. Um, but should we also not seek to put the study of EU external action into a more of a comparative perspective? But there I, and here's I shot across the bow. If we are to compare, for example, the African Union and the European Union, then classifying this study as part of EU external studies, action studies, seems to me to defeat the attempt not to view things in a Eurocentric manner. Um, so, you know, in other words, I, I, objecting, I think, to this kind of discipline building and, and shooting a warning signal about what doing, building those kinds of walls does to a study. It's, it contravenes this, what Nora has just been talking about, trying to decenter and view things from a much more global uh, perspective. So I would just, you know, what, what are the, what's the justific, what do you think? So question to the editors, what is the justification and the desirability of trying to delineate a separate, um, delineate and defend a separate field of study called EU external action studies? Then to Nora, I really like the chapter and how you showed how Eurocentrism pervades EU policies towards Turkey and the Mediterranean region. And but when I was reading the chapter, not not necessarily what you just presented to us, but this is the chapter in the book. I thought of Robert Cox's decades-old article on the purposes of theory, in which he distinguishes between problem-solving and critical theory. 
And I wondered in that chapter in particular, how you viewed the post-colonial post-colonial approach, because I detected quite emerging of problem solving and critical theory. In other words, um, do we need a post-colonial approach because it reveals what may be driving EU policy? So you might be explaining, I thought the explanation of how, how we are in the mess that we are in with EU-Turkey relations, I think, you know, showed how you could use a critical theory to show where we, how we have gotten to where we have gotten. However, you guys take it a little bit further and you argue that actually there's a problem solving thing going on here as well in terms of giving um, uh, advice to policymakers or showing what the implication being needing to talk to policy uh, makers, showing the implications of that uh, policy so that they can improve policy, which would impl imply, therefore, that the approach is actually a problem solving one, um, uh, not not a kind of um, solely critical uh, one. Um, so, so my question is, you know, uh, why do we need a post-colonial approach? Because we want to do better policy or because we actually want to understand um, uh, and analyze how we've gotten into the, the messes that we have gotten into thus far? And then just one final cheeky uh, question to, to Nora then on um, sort of if we do think that this is all about policy advice, um, and you guys have pointed out, you know, we got into this, the EU is in this horrific mess uh, with uh, Turkey, but how, what now would be the advice to policymakers on how to deal with Erdogan um, from this sort of de post-colonial uh, perspective? Um, so anyway, I just very cheeky, you might not have a, uh, it might not have a, a ready answer or anything, but it just did just kind of uh, um, bring, you know, that just came to mind because I thought, well, who are they addressing, policymakers or scholars? But anyway, I, I leave that to you. Uh, but very, you know, obviously very thought-provoking book because I have been uh, provoked into, into um, thinking much more carefully about what you guys, uh, with the broader agenda that's that's there. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, I'm conscious that we are taking the debate in a sort of a uh, quite an academic direction. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to steer it also in a, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a different direction uh, with a couple of points uh, um, and uh, uh, taking the a couple of questions from the audience, uh, then opening again for a further round uh, uh, of questions from the uh, audience. Uh, the first one is uh, uh, to you know uh, Simon and Siglinde because uh, clearly you have uh, uh, read all these beautiful chapters and all the examples that they make and I wonder whether it might be possible for you to sort of uh, uh, signal uh, uh, to us you know what would be good examples of European cooperation and examples instead of the typical failures uh, and, and how, you know, th those feed into the debate, you know, adding a little bit of, you know, practical um, uh, flesh on these uh, uh, theoretical bones. And one to Nora, because, I mean, you have been mentioning the example of the EU-Turkey relations, which, however, in a different chapter by Bahar Rumelili is treated in a very different way. Uh, suggesting that, you know, the EU is built on the politics of difference. And therefore, you know, it needs, it needs a Turkey, it needs a, a something out there against which to shore up its own identity. And so I wonder, you know, what, what does the EU-Turkey case study show us? Uh, is it actually 
possible to overcome this sort of uh, friend enemy or this othering type of mechanisms because i think that you know uh, there there is a bit of a tension between uh, between two chapters in this book <laughs> but uh, let me take also a couple of questions one is uh, from Paul Odubir, uh, former College of Europe, Comenius 67, uh, 68, a former Irish Department uh, of uh, Finance. And he's asking, how do the contributors rate the importance of the personality and competence of the high representative with reference to the first three occupants? So a question on the personality and competence of the high representative. And then we have a question from Ben Tondra, um, uh, a full professor of IR at University College Dublin, uh, who would love to hear from Nora on what uh, she might envisage for the practice of EU foreign policy if the need for decentering was to be taken on board by policymakers, echoing here uh, what Karen was mentioning. What would a post-Western era EU foreign policy look like? And a last one for now uh, from Ian Grant in London, former law enforcement intelligence analyst. What do you see as EAS strengths and weaknesses regarding good communications analysis, analysis and responses in crisis? Excellent questions. Thank you very much. Keep them, uh, sending them in, please. Um, but uh, round of uh, replies from our uh, guests. Nora, would you like to start this time? Sure, I can uh, I can start. And um, thank you so much for these uh, very stimulating and apt uh, questions and observations. Uh, and um, I guess I will sort of try and synthesize, since the questions were very complimentary, um, uh, Professor Smith, Professor Vicky's, and uh, Professor Torres' questions were very complimentary. I'll sort of offer a synthetic response. Um, so yes, indeed, there is this tension. And I think it's a tension that runs throughout the volume, uh, which is also what makes the volume so exciting. Um, between uh, sort of a, a theoretical engagement and contribution and a um, and um, sort of the an assessment of the empirical implications and the, the practice oriented implications um, of, uh, of of grappling with a European external action and so um, so that does that certainly runs throughout our chapter and is something that we um, flag quite explicitly uh, in the chapter as um, you know the, the whole sort of call to these center uh, in and of itself is at once an empirical and a normative undertaking. Um, and uh, in order to uh, do better, you have to kind of understand differently, right? So um, so indeed, the sort of the postcolonial literature and the inspiration that that um, uh, that helped us to develop our categories and our, heuristic, our analytical heuristic um, for how to dissenter um, is, uh, you know, is, is um, descriptive and uh, normative, um, but we do believe that it has practical uh, implications as well. Um, so that's step three, right? Uh, there's, there's you provincialize and then you, uh, and you engage or you listen, listen better. Um, and then you, um, uh, and then you seek, you know, it's part of a journey towards um, sort of transformative, uh, mutually, more, more, more mutually empathetic and inclusionary praxis. Um, so, you know, we very much recognize that the reconstruction uh, step is the, um, is the least developed, but we, in the chapter and in, um, in the, in the, in the sort of 
in the call to an agenda and in, uh, in, and in the work of um, others and, uh, and our own uh, ongoing work in terms of how you develop that reconstructive sort of dimension. Um, so I would say there's a couple of fields where it's particularly uh, useful, um, but substantively, um, as well as a couple of tools where um, it's quite useful. And this is, isn't actually in the, isn't mentioned in as much detail in the chapter, but it's where kind of uh, the agenda it, to my mind is evolving. Um, so, you know, one has to do with how you frame policies. Um, and this was critical for example, to that missed opportunity in the case of EU-Turkey relations. Um, so, you know, in the, the, there was a moment, I think, in the late 2000s, uh, mid to late 2000s, when there was, um, uh, I would argue that there was genuine receptivity among both um, the, the uh, people of Turkey and the government of Turkey um, to the prospect of joining what at the time was being discussed as a sort of, you know, more cosmopolitan uh, European uh, Union. Um, but these sort of uh, neo-colonial reflexes or habits of framing things in a very top-down sort of civilizationally uh, disdainful way to, this is this is what um, Bahar Rumeli talk, talks about in her chapter. You know, she's, she's describing um, that, that process of otherization that transpired, um, that what, what but that generates, and this is not just in Turkey, but this, it generates the same sort of, um, uh, it's, you know, knee-jerk reaction among um, anyone who has been on the receiving end of European universalism slash colonialism over um, history. It generates a, a, um, a rallying cry that double standards are being applied. And, uh, and uh, you know, there was a joke in Turkey at the time that, um, that uh, when the EU asked Bulgaria if they would like to join the union, um, Bulgaria said yes, and uh, the EU said, okay, we well, have to meet these two criteria. And then the EU asked Romania, would you like to join the European Union? And Romania said yes, and you have to meet these two criteria. Um, and then the, uh, then the European Union uh, asked Turkey if you would like to join it. And um, they, I, I can't even remember the punchline, I'm terrible at jokes, but it was basically, you know, an impossible uh, catalog uh, of, of, uh, of expectations uh, and, and, you know, which, which rendered the whole project Sisyphean. Um, so in that sense, you know, in terms of the way that if one frame, is able to frame policies that uh, might actually be multifinal, that might actually have um, uh, prospects for, for sort of transformative, you know, relationships uh, with interlocutors um, in, a, uh, in, in a more humble way, um, I think it can, it can go a, a significant amount towards actually helping to generate um, uh, the, the desired outcomes. Um, another uh, another space where I think there's practical implications is that um, if you listen multi, you know, if you engage in a multi-logue and recognize that there are plurality of voices out there, not one right way to do things, um, and that's within Europe itself as well. Um, it, if you recognize this, and then that also opens your, um, you know, it's, it's not just that that uh, understanding, but it also practically opens the possibility to engage with a wider range of actors. So, for example, when you look at uh, EU promotion of gender equality um, in its neighborhoods or in, um, in regions like the Middle East, um, there's a tendency to foreground a, um, a certain secular uh, Western feminist understanding of what gender equality should look like, um, you know, to which I personally have have little objection. But there's it, 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 again, it can reach this, it, it can generate this um, pushback reaction of of sort of cultural imperialism, uh, and um, and uh, and is, and and it, it does not graft necessarily uh, effectively onto sort of the sociological fabric um, of sites where uh, gender equality is being promoted. So if you engage with 
with a wide variety of uh, women's activists in the region or gender activists uh, in the region who are articulating perspectives, perhaps from a religious perspective, uh, view, using um, different uh, normative rationales and uh, advocating for differentiated strategies, you could achieve uh, potentially more um, impactful results. And I think there is, um, I think there is learning in this regard when it comes to sort of religious governance um, uh, policies and trainings of diplomats in terms of how to be more sensitive to different religious perspectives uh, in EU external engagement. Um, I think climate uh, governance is an area where this is crucial, right? You can't understand uh, climate change and you can't grapple with it as a challenge unless you understand the differentiated impacts it's having on more or less vulnerable communities in the global south, global north, uh, urban versus um, rural residents um, and the, the, the socioeconomic um, sort of burdens that, you know, some communities uh, bear um, that are often a product of the legacies of sort of colonial histories, you know, you, you won't be able to, you can't deal with migration to the European Union and climate driven migration unless you're listening in uh, pluralistic um, vein. And so um, I, I would say it's fledgling in terms of the, the practical applications, but I think there's many fields of governance. Um, and I would go so far as to venture even high geopolitics is a site where um, decentering uh, would, would, would serve the EU. So, you know, it's, um, uh, uh, the, the the tendency to um, portray uh, the other that Baharumili talks about in her chapter, the Turkish other, the Russian other, the Chinese other. You know, we've all seen this happen in, in, uh, before our eyes on multiple occasions. You know, certainly in the context of the the pandemic, the de the demonizing uh, of of, of uh, certain regions of the world um, by uh, what I call geocultural realists in the West um, uh, has 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 a self fulfilling prophecy dimension. Right. So um, so so simply by catching yourself in the act of a self-fulfilling prophecy can serve to avert the prophecy. Um, and I would say that is particularly important in an age when um, when uh, when actors like China and Russia and Turkey are, um, uh, you know, um, take up the experience of otherization and then begin to wear it as a badge of honor. Right. And as a uh, as a way to um, as, as a, a rational. Push back against uh, alleged European sort of Western neocolonial um, behavior uh, by um, by claiming the banner of the um, uh, of 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 the rest um, and 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 that this uh, can lead to a um, uh, a um, you know in realist terms leads to um, security dilemmas that could be avoided if one simply listened better. Um, and I sort of, I guess I addressed the Turkey questions, I kind of wove my response to the Turkey question um, throughout that, but happy to um, to reprise more, be mindful of the fact that there's um, the, 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 all, all the very important questions you raised to the editors of the volume to address. Thank you, Nora. Simon, would you like to go next? Yes, and thank you very much. These were excellent uh, comments and, and questions. I can't, of course, address all of them. I'll just pick a couple and start with the uh, questions raised by um, by Karen Smith, uh, which were very pertinent uh, indeed. Um, the first one was on whether the book doesn't focus too much on action and uh, not so much on inaction. Um, and where are the, the cats that address these sorts of questions of inaction, policy failure, de-Europeanization, de and so on? I think that um, if you wanted to, you could use uh, existing cats, uh, concepts, approaches, and theories to actually address these questions 
uh, already because um, what is an, uh, an inaction? Um, there can be two sorts of reasons for that inaction. Either it's a deliberate inaction. So in foreign policy analysis, Valerie Hudson and others have argued that not to take a decision uh, or to take is also to take a decision. So you take the decision to be inactive. And if that is the case, then I think you can perfectly use some of the uh, theories that are, um, for instance, the explanatory theories that help us to explain action, also to explain this sort of, of inaction or non-decision. Um, the other reason for an inaction could be a sort of unconscious failure to come to an, an agreement or uh, to, to develop blind spots and simply not wanting to act on certain matters. And uh, if that is the case, then there, I think there are lots of um, opportunities for, for concepts, approaches, and theories in the book that you could use to, uh, to, to tackle um, this sort of, of failure. For instance, you could work with concepts such as coherence or external effectiveness, or uh, of course, with the decentering agenda and, and this, uh, you know, expose those blind spots, why they are there, why there are certain issues that are not being uh, treated by EU external uh, action. So I think, of course, new concepts, new uh, theories and so on are welcome and could be developed on this. The existing catalogue is already well equipped uh, if it was interested in these sorts of questions to somehow also address them. On the second point raised by, um, by Karen Smith, and I think that's it's a very fundamental, important question. So what is the justification for and desirability of such a field, EU external action uh, studies? And maybe it's important to clarify that what we were doing when we were um, putting together this volume was not to say we want to define a new field or let alone a discipline. And I'd prefer to speak of a field of studies, but it rather happened the other way around. So we discovered that there are many concepts, approaches, and theories in this area. And we said, okay, um, so this seems to be an, you know, really a, a field of study that is becoming uh, stronger and stronger with a lot of variety of different perspectives and so on. So we make the argument um, that um, this should become a more conscious effort. Scholars should reflect more on what they are doing around EU external action. And uh, we, we then compare uh, the effort that is already ongoing to a number of criteria of an academic discipline, just as a thought experiment. And we said, yes, there is a, is a consolidation effort um, that is ongoing. And um, what we try to do here is to systematize and to make everybody aware of this. Uh, so to work against the sort of atomization of various concepts and that are all floating and a very disparate set of uh, thinking or, or of, of approaches to studying uh, this, this discipline. It, that for us is, is an identity shaping effort uh, which in the first instance requires a bit of a um, decoupling from the bordering disciplines. But in a second instance, we don't understand this at all as a wall building exercise, but rather as an exercise to, to shape and sharpen this identity. And then to go back and say, now we can uh, recouple with those other disciplines. We can bring more uh, to the table. We can build bridges uh, to them. And I think this sort of transferability also from studying the EU as a peculiar non-state uh, actor in external action and to learn from, from this actor and then to uh, export this again to other actors uh, is, is one of the, the strengths we, we see in this, uh, this field of studies. So um, it's not um, in that sense an, an, an agenda to, uh, you know, to delimit um, this group of scholars from others, but rather to make a conscious effort 
to sharpen this identity, as I said, and then to reach out again uh, with a strengthened and systematized field. And then maybe I can pick up one, one more question from, from the other questions, and then I'll leave it to, to Sieglinde um, to respond also. Um, there was a question about good examples of European cooperation, because it's true that we often hear about the failures of EU external action in the neighborhood. Um, I'm thinking about the Ukraine crisis, even though in the chapter of the book, um, Andrew Moravchik and uh, Sandra Emmons actually argue the opposite, namely that the EU's engagement in Ukraine is not a failure, but a success. So for those interested, do take a look into that chapter. But I think examples of European cooperation that are quite successful can be seen in areas where the EU is um, has a strong internal has either a strong competence or a strong coherence internally. Uh, for instance, in areas such as trade uh, or climate change, where the EU is very coherently, there's a communitarized uh, policy, and it also helps it to then engage um, solidly uh, on that basis externally and with a coherent uh, position. Uh, but also broader policy areas such as enlargement are typically seen as areas in which uh, European cooperation. Uh, has been very successful. And with this, maybe um, I'll hand it to uh, over to Sieglinde. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, Sieglinde, uh, over to you. And I hope that uh, we uh, you know, can also address uh, the issue, the very important issues that were raised uh, um, uh, from the audience uh, by Paul on personality and competence. Uh, of the high representative, if only because I know of uh, uh, someone who's working on a dissertation on this and therefore uh, your answer would be particularly <laughs> welcome. And similarly by uh, you one on the strengths and weaknesses regarding uh, the EU response and communication in crisis situations, because uh, I think that this is also quite to the point. I think that you one has really a point because I mean, um, much as we like the EU, the crisis situations is not where the EU tends to shine. So if you can spot any uh, good practices, that would be really useful. Linde. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, very difficult questions. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to highlight on the question of the high representative that actually in the book there's a chapter by uh, Lisbeth Agastam on role theory and leadership in EU external action. So uh, I didn't write it, obviously, but she has uh, looked into the performance of the high representative and especially into the leadership role or not. So and uh, her take on that was that, um, you know, the, the role performance or the roles that actors play on the international stage emerge in an interaction between the own role conception and the role expectations of the others. And of course, this can sometimes generate role conflict. So if anybody's interested in a theoretical take, I would recommend a chapter in the book. Uh, to look at it from a more empirical perspective, maybe, uh, as the question was raised uh, as such. I personally, I do think that the personality matters, you know, um, but you also have to keep in mind the different time periods of the three high reps, or if you take Javier Solana, we might have had a fourth one, uh, have been uh, serving because uh, not only the external environment was quite different, but also the institutional setup uh, inside the European Union. Uh, Catherine Ashton starting with having to, first of all, create the European External Action Service, uh, Mogherini taking over when it was already running, and then Borrell, of course, coming in later in an area of more geopolitics, maybe. Um, so I think uh, 
you have to see the whole package and I would say personality matters, but then also you have the institutional backup. You have the question of legal competences because I had a, you know, the high rep deals largely with CFSP issues, but you have all these other things, which we also consider EU external actions, such as trade policy, for instance, or climate change or what have you. So that would also be part of external action. And then, of course, if it comes to CFSP, it's always the EU member states and their political will to act uh, that is important as well. And maybe as a footnote, I just wanted to say after what Simon said on the uh, in response to Karen's uh, EU external inaction, which I found very nice. Uh, what, brought, what came to my mind, first of all, was, of course, the famous concept that comes from this field, which is the capability expectation gap of the European Union when it comes to its foreign policy. So the low, high expectations, low capabilities often, which have improved over time, possibly, uh, but it's still there. And then the other question on um, communication by the European Union, right? Um, Strengths and weaknesses of the EAS. Um, well, the strength is that we actually have an EAS now with a lot of EU delegations, and EU delegations, unlike a couple of years ago, can deal with uh, all matters of EU external action, be it CFSP and non-CFSP, and they have also been given more capabilities. So I think, even though we don't call it a foreign ministry, <laughs> it's more of a foreign ministry than it, than it has ever been in the past uh, in, in, in the European Union. When it comes to the communication, um, I think something that strikes you maybe if you look at it, um, we do have since 2016 uh, the EU global strategy, uh, which is global in the sense of worldwide, but also global for the first time in the sense of covering all fields of external policies of the European Union, um, whereas the old strategy the European security strategy, which Solana came up with, was just really focusing on security. So you can also see it in the strategies. And the strategies are important for the communication, of course. Now, what is interesting about the EU global strategy, because the EU also, maybe against the background of the Lisbon Treaty, is very high on rhetoric. It's also about values. Uh, so a lot of talk about values and norms uh, in, in its external action. And the EU global strategy has toned this down a little bit, talking about principled pragmatism as the core concept. So you have principles, values, as an ideational aspiration, but you have to be pragmatic or more realistic uh, based on a you know, realistic assessment of the situation. So I think we, the EU has been going backwards a little bit, and you can see it even more now under Borrell's term also on... Um, uh, becoming more assertive in an area of geopolitics, stressing strategic autonomy and things like that. So I think the communication has changed. It has maybe adapted or has been forced to adapt, as you wish, um, to the situation uh, worldwide. I think that's something to keep in mind. And uh, yeah, I mean, on the weak side, weakness, of course, you still have the question of this gap of capabilities in certain areas. Uh, and maybe just one last point since I have the floor, sorry, <laughs> uh, to respond to what Karen said, which I liked very much. Um, I have a full sympathy to IR being pluridisciplinary. I come from that corner myself. Uh, and my understanding was always that EU studies is a bit the same. You have EU law, you have European economics, you have, you know, they have different fields, history, etc. So, and EU external action studies has been sitting a little bit squarely in between these 
disciplines or subdisciplines or fields or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think that was also triggering part of our understanding that it's, you know, it's a bit of IR, it's a bit of foreign policy and, uh, analysis. It's also in EU studies, but what is it actually? Because I think EU external action study is also to be understood in a pluridisciplinary way. And in, the, in that sense, you can draw some parallels maybe with IR as you understand it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we have another series of questions uh, from a couple from former um, students here at LSE in the Department of International Relations. Good to see you. One is Leonardo De Agostini, who asks, what if the European external action theoretical slash academic project is not building a wall, but in fact building bridges? I see it he says, as a way to include new point of views and academic stimuli, <coughs> sorry, in the EU discussion, uh, for instance, including practice theory and post-colonial views. Uh, Linda Tutova instead goes in a different direction and asks, what are your views on the recently presented strategic compass? Does the first ever joint threat assessment a part of the compass process indicate that EU member states might be finding a one strategic culture. Will the compass change the way we look at the EU's external action? And this is something that was also uh, echoed in a uh, comment slash question by Gauthier Parton Devant, uh, who is asking, how would you analyze and critique the unveiling of the EAS strategic compass? in the context of your book, particularly in contrast with the previous concept of strategic autonomy. I think that these are uh, great points and probably Siglinde, do you want to start, especially with reference to Leonardo's point? Okay, thank you. Well, yes, I think it has maybe already come out a bit in the previous discussion. Um, the, we are not interested in building walls, but rather bridges. And I think Simon also mentioned it very briefly in his talk about, you know, EU external action studies has been importing a lot of things, concepts, approaches, theories um, to work with, but it's still, it's so young, it still has to start exporting maybe. And, you know, concepts such as activeness, even though it doesn't seem to be the most popular uh, anymore from what I understood from a previous talk or, you know, that things that are kind of homegrown in the studying the external action of the EU, but then can be fru made fruitful in other areas um, as well. And, uh, or if we think of what Nora just presented, I mean, we have the discussion about global IR or post-Western IR. Uh, and she very briefly also said global EU external action studies or, you know, so that I think this centering is also something, even though maybe um, a lot of people are working out on it now, right now, on, with relation to the EU because of Eurocentrism, it can be fruitfully be uh, used elsewhere outside in another context outside of the EU as well. So I think this export still has to be developed uh, and, 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 and worked on. Uh, maybe just one more remark on um, will there be one culture in Europe? I don't think so. One strategic culture, 
Now, <laughs> I think uh, the strength or the, is the riches and the diversity of Europe. But of course, these cultures should work together and be compatible so that they can have a common compass. And it's very telling that this is the first, very first joint uh, threat assessment. Uh, you know, you might be surprised that it's really the first one. I mean, we've had, you know, common foreign security policy for years. Um, so things are moving, but I think it's not going to lead to a single strategic culture. And I think it would also maybe not even be so desirable. Thank you. Yeah, no, this is very interesting. In fact, I mean, uh, was it uh, President Michel who recently uh, mentioned that uh, 2022 will be the year of defense, uh, which is raising the bar considerably uh, in terms of uh, defense and security and also uh, raising a number of uh, um, problems and creating problems also for the EU itself in terms of how it communicates and, uh, and it works. So thank you, Siglinde. Simon. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I, I don't feel that I, I can add a lot to what Siglinde has already said in response to these uh, questions. Um, I think this strategic compass has to be seen in the continuity of the discussion that Siglinde alluded to about um, the EU becoming initially um, an actor that banks on principled pragmatism, so puts its interests more forward while at the same time um, uh, still being attached to uh, uh, its values and, and being a multilateral actor and, uh, and so on. But um, which has been reinforced, I think, since um, this commission has taken over in December 2019 with uh, von der Leyen and uh, Borrell wanting to uh, turn the European Union into a more geopolitical uh, actor And I think the strategic compass is, in a way, the uh, practical operationalization of this, what is currently still actually a, a discourse. And I, I don't, um, I think it's, it's a laudable uh, effort, if that is the agenda, it's a laudable effort to systematize uh, thinking about this. Um, but um, I would caution against, I mean, we had the discussion about um, Nora's and um, Calypso Nicolaides ch um, chapter in the book earlier, and um, I think um, Calypso Nicolaides made the observation that the EU has no choice but to be a geopolitical actor these days, because that is what the world is like. And um, uh, at the same time, I think that doesn't necessarily mean that you can only act um, according to um, certain recipes from, from a certain theoretical perspective, such as neorealism, that you develop hard power capacities and so on. So I would caution against go moving too much into that direction and not cultivating some of the strengths that the European Union already has uh, in many other soft policy areas. Um, and uh, using, for instance, what has been called its, its Brussels effect, so the, the internal policies. Um, so so you know, banking on what it already is, does, and, and can do, rather than um, simply putting all emphasis on the development of, of hard uh, power capacities, because that will, as Linda also mentioned earlier, very much depend ultimately on the willingness of the of the member states. And even though the Trump uh, experience and and maybe also Brexit opened a window of opportunity going into that direction, um, there's always going to be um, uh, difficulties when it comes to finding uh, the the necessary um, uh, consensus unanimity on on these sorts of matters. Thank you very much. Nora. 
Yeah, I think I just want to chime in and reinforce this last point that um, Simon has made about um, about the uh, you know while while being realistic uh, as opposed to necessarily you know realist or neo realist in in um, in response to the, um, uh, the, the the geopolitical imperatives of our age um, does entail you know attending to uh, security. Security and and um, and this does seem to be a direction in which the EU is evolving. And clearly, the you know the the, the experience of um, uh, U.S. is sort of the recognition that the U.S. has has isolated um, even in a post-Trump uh, era. You know, you know, certainly stimulates this 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 call for um, a, a sort of a more strict. Um, a more security-oriented approach, um, but I would say, you know, if you just take sort of just, you know, good old sort of a, a balance of power theory and look at what middle powers do best, um, and if the EU in this context is, in this emerging global context, is sort of, you know, a, a super middle power, as it were, I just made that up, um, then uh, middle powers are very good at diplomacy, right? They're very good at bridge building. They're very good at coalition building and at, and at finding niche subjects where they excel and thriving in those niche spaces. Um, and so in this context, you know, even from a realist perspective, uh, the EU's uh, forte is uh, is in drawing on its sort of multifunctional capacities, um, drawing on its soft power in a number of areas. So, so in, throughout our call for sort of a post-colonial uh, ethos, um, the call has not been to, to jettison um, some of the great achievements uh, that the European Union has produced and has sought to promote actively uh, in its neighborhoods, including um, you know, achievements relevant to uh, human rights, um, rule of law, uh, and, and, and various other sort of, you know, softer, softer norms. So this is the EU's forte. Um, and it's a question of how to do it in 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 ways that where the um, uh, practices uh, align better with what is being uh, preached. Um, this can have this continues to have uh, you know exert massive power of attraction uh, on. Um, on the uh, um, on the use neighbors and inter interlocutors, if it can be divested of uh, the sort of the the, the colonial or neo-colonial um, in inflections, um, and in this regard, I think this this also came up recently in a conversation that we had. Um, uh, you know, so when so whenever um, there's the pushback, I hear the pushback that no, the EU needs to become a hard, you know, uh, security actor. Um, in this context, you know, just just look at the strongest actor within the EU context, um, and that is Germany. And Germany has absolutely thrived um, by uh, reckoning with its history, with the darker pages of its history, and by seeking to atone for um, and and. Um, and, and listening to a plurality of perspectives regarding its past. You know, the EU may be kind of a, you know, a more um, middle level player in this global scheme of things. But when you look at nation states per se, you know, Germany is absolutely at the top of this game within the region uh, and globally. And it has done so um, in good measure by acting as a, uh, as a, um, uh, by being reflexive, by atoning for its past, um, by being multilateral, by uh, investing in, in, in soft power tools um, that you know, have basically made Germany the defender of the, the liberal order from 2016 to 2000, uh, 2000, um, 
and 20 in many respects. So um, again, it's just a, uh, a you know, when, when when I hear the calls for sort of strategic autonomy and the sort of the hard, uh, the aspirations, the hard power um, that underwrite it, I realize that Europe is, has changed a lot, but it's still a far cry away from being um, able to or wanting to put millions of boots on the ground um, anywhere uh, on, the, on the planet. And so play to your strengths. Thank you. Um, Karen, do you want to have a sort of a one minute uh, intervention uh, before we close? I mean, I can think of something, I guess, a, a fascinating discussion. I just wonder whether if you were sitting in Beijing, any of this would matter at all. Um, you know, whether they this they're even paying attention to what we talk about over here, um, uh, whether they would care. Um, and I think play, I agree, Nora, play to your strengths. And I have always wondered, and what does military power buy you? It doesn't buy you much, even if you're the United States or um, China, though it could, of course, be very useful for, um, say, invading um, a neighboring island. Um, but, um, uh, but I, you know, I, I guess I just, I just come back to the, the critique that has been made about Moravchik's argument on a superpower. When you have so much logic of diversity within the EU and you have so many illiberal, illiberal players and actors within the European Union, the, the uh, you know, the, the what, what might one might have considered to be the strengths of the EU, I think, become weaker. That's my worry, is that in a moment in which the, the world needs a stronger, um, sort of more liberal voice, the EU is becoming less so. Um, so I guess I would just, yeah, but sorry, there's a bit of a downer. So maybe you guys want to come back and say, no, 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 <laughs> um, absolutely not. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just, just my concerns about the, 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 the directions we've been heading in recently. Thank you, Karen. I mean, uh, um, I would uh, like to close just by picking up on something that Anthony, uh, and Alessia external alum has just, uh, uh, posted in terms of the EAS role on nuclear issues uh, alongside two EU states, uh, which is a very good point. And in a way, I think speaks also to uh, what uh, Karen has just been saying uh, and our uh, debate more generally in terms of the fact that as long as there is a voice, as long as the EU is able to uh, do something at times uh, in terms of good citizenry and uh, uh, you know contributing to the common good of uh, uh, the international uh, uh, global order uh, that keeps the, uh, in our interest in EU affairs uh, relevant and alive. Um, because uh, uh, I think it's uh, um, one of the great. Uh, pleasures of this book is to see how many uh, issues and interesting points there are in the study of uh, uh, the external action of the EU. But uh, we're coming into an end, and so please join me in thanking our uh, speakers uh, today um, and uh, uh, looking forward to the next opportunity to continue discussing these interesting points. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.